Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. A big pre-holiday episode for you all today, where we'll get into the recent instability and escalation of violence in the West Bank with Israel Policy Forum's very own Director of Research, Shira Efron, and our friend Dan Rotem, a Senior Policy Advisor at the Herbert Kelman Institute for Conflict Transformation, an expert on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and some say the best Israeli baseball player of his generation. But first, a few quick thoughts from me. So, on the precipice of a new Jewish year, these are the three main issues that we're keeping an eye on right now. First, as mentioned, the West Bank and Palestinian Authority, which we'll get into in just a second. Uh, Second, the Iran nuclear deal, which just a few weeks ago looked to be imminent and is now unlikely to be signed, if at all, before the various elections happening in November. For why the deal is now apparently off, be sure to check out the prescient episode we recorded earlier this month with Nasan Rafati. Uh, and also, we should mention, on a distinct but related note, uh, ongoing tensions between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, over offshore natural gas fields in the Mediterranean. Uh, it seems crazy that Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah is threatening a war over natural gas fields in the Mediterranean. Uh, but then again, it's the Middle East. Uh, and the third issue, obviously, Israeli domestic politics and the upcoming election on November 1st. So a dramatic event took place last Thursday, just ahead of the deadline to register parties for the election. The joint Arab list broke apart to create a situation where we now have three predominantly Arab-Israeli parties all running. The Islamist Ram Party, uh, which is famously part of the outgoing governing coalition here in Israel. Uh, Hadash Tal, which is an alliance of two parties, uh, the communist Hadash and the Palestinian nationalist Tal. And the Balad Party, this is the third party running, which is often described as pan-Arab nationalist and the most hardline of the Arab parties here in Israel. So why is this important and dramatic? Why does all this matter? Because this upcoming election was almost certainly going to be very close, with one or two seats making all the difference between the pro-Netanyahu camp and the anti-Netanyahu camp, uh, in this, Arab-Israeli voter turnout was going to be crucial. And crucial, that is, for the prospects of the anti-Netanyahu camp. In recent years, there's been one rule of thumb in Arab-Israeli politics. Unity amongst the Arab parties drove Arab-Israeli turnout to 60% and more. Divisions amongst the Arab parties depressed turnout to below 50% and in some cases below 45%. So again, we now have three parties running with at least one party, Balad, almost certainly not going to make it over the 3.25% electoral threshold for entry into the Knesset. Uh, and maybe even the two others, Ram and Khadash Tal, in danger of not making it over the threshold uh in the event that Arab-Israeli turnout is low. Bottom line, the events of last week have given a real advantage to Bibi Netanyahu in his comeback bid. In the remaining six weeks before election day, the Arab politicians, and the Jewish politicians too, have to make a real effort to get out the vote in the Arab-Israeli community. All their political futures depend on it. Let's get to Shira Efron and Dan Rotem. Hi, Shira. Hi, Dan. 
thank you for joining us this week. Hi, Mary. Hi, Dan. Hi, guys. I'm a big fan. So excited to be here. Let's do this. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Dan. You're like those uh, those radio call-in shows, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. So we appreciate you uh, calling in today. Although a long time, uh, sort of like, a, I shouldn't say sidekick, but a big contributor to IPF uh, content and work. That's right. And more upcoming from what I hear. You're right. Very cool. Uh, so today we wanted to spend most of our time talking about the West Bank. And just to set the table for our listeners, uh, they should all know Israel is now in the six months of what it's called Operation Breakwater, literally daily and nightly arrest operations targeting militants in the northern West Bank, in cities like Janine and Nablus. Uh, this operation came about after the spate of terror attacks in Israel in late March and early April, which I'm sure all of our listeners remember because we discussed it at length on the Israel Policy Pod. Uh, and these attacks, uh, fortunately, claimed the lives of some 20 Israelis. Operation Breakwater is, by some measure, the biggest and most sustained IDF operation in the West Bank since the Second Intifada. And the Second Intifada ended 17 years ago. Uh, this has all come at a cost, however. Over 80 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the beginning of this year. Uh, some of these undoubtedly militants and some of them undoubtedly innocent bystanders, including one journalist, Shirin Abu Akhle, uh, who was covering an IDF raid uh, that very morning in Janine. According to the Shin Bet, some 130 shooting attacks have taken place in the West Bank this year, which is a major increase from years past. Uh, according to the Shin Bet, over 200 attacks have been thwarted and oh, over 2,000 terror suspects have been arrested. So, okay, with all that being said, let's start here. Um, from both of your long experiences, how concerned should we be about what's happening in the West Bank, both in terms of the ongoing IDF operation, obviously, and also in terms of growing Palestinian willingness to launch attacks and or confront the IDF. So, Dan, let's start with you, longtime listener, first-time caller. What do you make of what's happening right now in the West Bank? So, honestly, it's hard for me to make exactly what it is, and I'll elaborate in, in a minute, I think what's noteworthy is how concerned the Israeli security establishment is. And I'll say this, maybe to our listeners, the, the amount of concern should probably be guided by your diagnosis of, of, of the problem here. Is Israel's strategy, you know, basically maintaining, you know, self-governance capability as a proxy for, you know, security, you know, deliverables in the West Bank, is that strategy largely still holds with a bug or a moment or, or, or like a specific failure that now unravels in the Northern West Bank? Uh, and then you should be concerned, but there are operational fixes for that. More money, more equipment, a bit more motivation, maybe some internal PA adjustments, or is what we're seeing here something more systemic, uh, both social, political trends that, that, that merge together with an Israeli strategy that was doomed to, I don't want to say doomed to failure, but doomed to succeed only, you know, within limits uh, for the past 15, 17 years since the end of the Second Intifada. So how concerned 
uh, our listeners should be or am I? That depends on our on our assessment of the situation. Uh, I tend to be pretty concerned. I think the strategy we have led uh, is ultimately unsustainable. I don't want to say it wasn't sustainable throughout. Um, and, and now we're facing, you know, some, some very um, troubling dynamics at play here. And maybe we can elaborate on that in a bit. So that's interesting. So basically, you don't quite know, and arguably the Israeli security establishment doesn't know whether this is kind of a blip or a momentary escalation in the past relative stability of the past 15, 17 years, whether this is the beginning of a downward spiral that we just haven't reached yet, uh, which, by the way, has been the case the beginning of the first intifada, second intifada, it wasn't very clear even to the even to the professionals on the Israeli side, definitely that this was going to to escalate into something much much bigger. Uh, Shira, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm I'm pretty concerned. Um, for a long time, the West Bank uh, was the quietest place in the Middle East. Right. If you think from since the second intifada, for the most part, I mean, we had what you call the knife intifada in 2015, but Israel was able to sort of uh, contained uh, this event with a smart strategy. And even even during the operations in Gaza, right, and Jerusalem, and there were rocks. I mean, last year, May 2021, the West Bank was relatively quiet. Um, and it's not what we're seeing now. It's not what you you, distri- you described in the opening in the first. Um, in those uh, recent few months, and I'm concerned for a variety of reasons. First of all, we don't see, I mean, according to Israeli intelligence and the IDF and, you know, Shin Bet, um, it doesn't seem like, you know, when you have a terrorist organization like Hamas guiding um, uh, uh, an armed resistance, right? It's something that you're like, okay, we can we can handle this. But it seems that most of the, the those committing those violent attacks uh, they don't have any organizational affiliation. So then it's really difficult to uh, contain this. You know, it's not just the tactical military operation, which Israel knows how to do very well, but it's also what is the root cause. And it's not, you know, we can go and do the usual things we do and attack Hamas and 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 bribe them a little bit and do those carrots and sticks and hope this will work. Because if it's broader in the population... And if you have young Palestinians without any prior uh, criminal or security uh, allegations, no background, uh, many of them are new to the Shin Bet, uh, believing that they're better off dead or in prison there than alive. I think this is this is concerning. Um, I'm also uh, concerned at um, what we are seeing. Um, I had a chance to go with with the it's, it may sound provocative, but it really it was really uh, an educational tour of uh, Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa, Haram al-Sharif. And it sounds um, maybe funny coming from me, but what I saw was a lot of Jewish groups there. Um, so we're seeing more and more Jewish groups on Temple Mount, more and more every year. We also know the numbers. The Jewish holidays are coming, Sukkot. So this is another area where, you know, there's a more reason to be concerned and not for de-escalation, but more for escalation. And what we're also, and I think maybe the final reason why I'm concerned is that it's not that easy. And then, and I talk about it a lot. It's not like sort of like, oh, Israel goes in and if only uh, Israel let the PA handle it. 
Uh, then we will have this intermediary, right, that we've had for 29 years now. It's 29 years to the Oslo uh, Accords. I had its birthday last week. Right, right. So uh, that we can trust them because we see, uh, first of all, weakening of the PA and less, uh, it seems, less appetite on their part. Uh, to act. So it's not just when you ask, you see those uh, uh, increased willingness of Palestinians to uh, commit attacks and also stand up to the IDF, but it's also decreased willingness um, of the PA or inability, let's say, of the PA to uh, handle the situation. And together, those things are very concerning to me. Right. Uh, so that's a good transition. By the way, hold that thought about Jerusalem and the upcoming Jewish holidays. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, and by the way, your point initially about this being really localized and unaffiliated armed groups and armed individuals on the Palestinian side is is correct. Uh, it's oftentimes easier for Israel to deal with a large militant organization like Hamas or Islamic Jihad. Uh, you go after leaders, you go after networks and cells. Uh, this, I think, is bottom-up and not top-down, which makes it a lot harder to, to locate ahead of time and to, uh, and to thwart if not deter. So, all right, all that being said, we've seen over the past few weeks, uh, coming from Prime Minister Yair Lapid, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi, all saying the same thing, which is that the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority security forces need to do more in these problem areas in the Northern West Bank. They need to go in and take care of the gunmen and militants. They need to take control over these pockets of violence and instability. Uh, and if not, the Israeli officials warn, the IDF will go in and do the job for them. Um, I personally think there's a lot wrong with those statements. Uh, but Shira, you, you and I definitely follow this issue very closely. Uh, in terms of PA security force capabilities, right, have have they ever really had the capabilities to go in and say clear out a problem area like the Janine refugee camp? I mean, you know the answer. There's been a security vacuum in the Janine <laughs> refugee camp, and not just the Janine refugee camp, many of the refugee camps that we've warned about, I think, at least several times in the last few years. So it was something that was well known. I don't know. I don't think that they had had the ability. Of course, maybe we should have preempted this, uh, strengthening the PA. You literally, Nary, wrote, wrote the book about it. So the many thing of how many many uh, suggestions and recommendations of how to strengthen the Palestinian security forces and empower them, but we haven't done that in those um, areas that really are security vacuum and, and uh, interesting situations, uh, right in Janine. But then the question goes to, okay, it started only in Janine. Could um, Israel and the international community, I'll mention, right, is the U.S. security coordinator and it's a multinational uh, force helping the PA, could have they um, uh, uh, preempted uh, the situation deteriorating also in Nablus? And now from Nablus, are we moving to Hebron? I mean, I, I don't know, right? But but this is where you're saying, okay, <laughs> how do we act quickly uh, to contain this? What do we need to do with the PA now um, to help them do their job, uh, gain control in, in a way that uh, also strengthens them and not delegitimizes them even further uh, in the eyes of their people, which is really the big challenge. Yeah. Uh, 
I'd argue that was a leading question. Sorry about that, Shira. But I'd argue that the Israeli side for many years now, and they've been warned. I wrote about it along with my co-author, Leithel Omari. You've written about it, Shira. Others have written about it. You know, let the PA security forces do more. Give them, give them the tools, right? Politically and militarily to go in and assert control and assert sovereignty uh, and security for their own people. And that never happened. That never happened. Uh, and now I find it a bit, a bit much that the Israeli leadership is coming and saying, well, where, where are the PA security forces? Um, cause they could have done the Israeli side could have done a lot more to strengthen that institution over the course of the past decade, uh, when the PA security forces were really doing a lot more and working hand in hand with the, with the Israeli security forces. Dan, give our listeners a sense how, plausible is it that given the instability and, and violence that we're seeing, especially in the Northern West Bank, that now the Israelis are are demanding, very publicly demanding, that the PA go in and take care of these militants? Is this even, is this even reasonable to ask of the PA, given the current climate? Sure, it's reasonable to ask. You have to manage your expectations <laughs> uh, of what will happen. And, uh, and I think we Israelis need to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves, right, when our strategy for the better part of the past decade, included, uh, you know, assaults, if you would, on the legitimacy of the PA. Uh, no political horizon, uh, as, as yawning as that term may sound today. Um, but what was, you, you know, the, the, the framework within which Palestinians could assert self-governance uh, throughout the process, um, but then also the reality on the ground, you know, with Israeli um, incursions and expansions into the, the Palestinian space, both civil via settlement enterprise and also security, you know, basically erasing the distinctions between areas A, B, uh, and C, and just Israel, you know, acting um, throughout, you know, throughout the territories, if you would, at will. Um, so, so that's our part. I, I think maybe it's worthwhile to take a couple of minutes and deconstruct um, what had happened on the Palestinian side. Um, and I think it starts with, with I think, Abu Mazen's strategy um, of fragmenting Fatah and defunding Fatah opponents for him, uh, which basically left a vacuum in some areas of the West Bank either the more organized Tanzims or, you know, the Al-Aqsa brigades, the more, you know, localized, young, younger, I guess, Fatah operatives who were no longer, you know, you know, the chain, if you would, the chain of command to the extent that there was one uh, was completely shattered because of succession dynamics, because of Abu Mazen just fighting off Tirawi or Rajub or, you know, Dahlan from now outside Fatah or whatever which basically left the space for Hamas, whatever Hamas elements are there, and for, for Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and for the Al-Aqsa Brigades to organize locally. And, and, and if you're, you know, Fatah rank and file, uh, the option of, of getting money and support from, you know, PIJ uh, or, or whatever localized organizations are there is as tempting as, you know, looking up through the, through the Fatah ranks 
and, and, and hope for support that will certainly material support that will likely never come. So that brought us to now. And as you guys have outlined, uh, Israel is faced with, with no organizational mechanism, uh, a Palestinian one, to, to engage or to solicit in addressing this. It's a great point. Uh, I should remind our listeners, Abu Mazen uh, is President Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president. Uh, the names Dan rattled off uh, were senior Fatah leaders, uh, Taufik Tarawi, Jabril Rajoub, and so on and so forth. Uh, and PIJ is Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So just to get all that on the record. Uh, but Dan makes a great point. It's not just all on Israel. Uh, there's also obviously internal Palestinian politics having to do with the ruling Fatah party of Mahmoud Abbas. Um, just by way of anecdote, uh, about six years ago, I was reporting a story in the Kasbah, the old city of Nablus, uh, after a major Palestinian security operation uh, in, in Nablus, in the old city and in Balata, uh, arguably the biggest Palestinian security operation since uh, well, let's say ever and then since. I don't think they've had a bigger one since that uh, 2016 operation. And they were going after precisely those armed gangs of Fatah-affiliated like families and young people because they viewed it as a threat. They thought uh, Mohammed Dahlan, the exiled Fatah leader, uh, was arming them and funding them. And so there was a lot of motivation back then uh, by the ruling Fatah elite uh, led by Abbas to go after these armed elements, uh, that seems to have gone gone away, maybe because of fracturing within Fatah. Uh, so worth keeping keeping in mind. Uh, Shira, back to the Israeli side. The the current slash outgoing government led by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid and Defense Minister Benny Gantz came into power just over a year ago, uh, promising a big game about shrinking the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, in your opinion, A, how successful was was this uh, shrinking program? What did they actually do? And also, how, is, how did it come to be that uh, this government that was allegedly trying to shrink the conflict is now uh, embarking on, like I said, the biggest military operation in the West Bank for some 15, 17 years? What do you think? Yes, so I think this shrinking the conflict uh, concept uh, came with uh, under a very strong assumption that I think we should always, you know, when you we should always test our assumptions and how robust they are. But the assumption was that we can't make um, any breakthroughs in a meaningful political process. You can't uh, embark on a peace process with the leadership on on their side, the leadership on our side, for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, yet it's in our interest to keep the uh, window open for some sort of separation. And I don't think that everyone um, on the Israeli side, for sure, are on the same uh, terms when it comes to that. Right. But it's more like, OK, let's um, reduce the friction. By the way, I should say that Dan is working on shrinking the conflict, um, turning this concept into uh, uh like it, putting more meat on the bones and what it actually means. So I think he could uh, provide us with, with, with a lot more detail, but I think an actual work plan, right? Uh, yeah. A work plan. But I think, um, as it sounded, uh, great, it's, it sounds great. Um, we were skeptic, uh, 
at the beginning because we thought it sounds just a euphemism for managing the conflict, right? Which is what Israel has been doing all this time. But we thought maybe it's not going to be a management of the conflict that we've seen in the last decade, which really Dan mentioned also, um, a, a, a systematic, a deliberate uh, attempt to undermine uh, the PA, your partner, right? <laughs> uh, in the West Bank, which, and, and it worked, Israel succeeded in undermining. So the shrinking of the conflict came with also with a big component of strengthening the PA. Um, some of the measures were really important. There were some fiscal measures, uh, loans, uh, there were increased permits uh, uh, to work in Israel. There were uh, some approval for projects and we spoke about the crossings and, you know, um, but because of also, I think for a variety of reasons, but also because of the political crisis in Israel, that there's a fear of doing anything that is, is really symbolic, uh, transferring uh, more sovereignty uh, to the Palestinian and speaking about this political horizon, which, which Dan said that without which, it's very difficult to speak with the Palestinians. We keep saying like, okay, let's strengthen the PA, let's strengthen the institutions, but the institutions are supposed to come in within the paradigm of a two-state solution, of a Palestinian state. But when they hear uh, the Palestinians, and by the way, as an Israeli, I can tell you that I'm a bit puzzled when I hear the defense minister on one hand talking about shrinking the conflict, and on the other hand, speaking about uh, a one-state solution is an illusion, but also a two-state solution Um it seems that the Israeli side, at least in their interpretation of the current leadership of shrinking the conflict, is sort of continuing the status quo, but managing it a little bit better. Um, and clearly this has its limits. Um, that's, that's you know, my take on it. Now, what will happen if there's a steady government here that can develop work plans, that is not scared of meeting with Abu Mazen, again, Mahmoud Abbas, of doing more for the Palestinians, of having Palestinian flags in the Allenby crossing to Jordan, God forbid. Uh, things can change. I still believe that we can salvage this, this, this project called the PA, but it needs to be uh, comprehensive and sincere. And it is extremely difficult to do in the current uh, uh, political reality in Israel. And also depending on what happens November 1st, election day here, you might have a hard right government, which wants to do the exact opposite. Uh, Dan, what do you think of the past year's efforts to shrink this conflict? So I think, I think shrinking the conflict, at least until now, was mostly tagline or a headline, if you would, it, uh, it was never fully developed. I think certainly th this government that was so haunted by various issues never, and to some extent still maintained an instinct of, you know, containing the Palestinian challenge and ignoring it to the extent possible, um, never really invested itself in developing what shrinking the conflict is, what, what differentiates it from managing the conflict or from economic peace. So first of all, it was never fully developed. As I said, um, it does have blind spots, many blind spots. It doesn't deal with Jerusalem, doesn't deal with Gaza. Um, it, it, it assumes Palestinian motivation for self-governance that sometimes is not the case for reasons that go beyond uh, our mandate here. Um, it will not endorse an endgame vision, certainly not two states. But the reason I think mostly, uh, A, for some ideological opposition uh, by at least 
you know, the first prime minister of this outgoing government um, and others. But, Naftali Bennett. Yes, Naftali Bennett. And certainly for, you know, with, with a very mindful goal of enhancing Israeli legitimacy. The moment you slap two states out there, you lose or you I mean, you gain, I would say, the opposition of very powerful political actors that were part of this outgoing coalition. Um, so I think with that in mind, uh, there are some real differences between, b- between what shrinking the conflict, I think, is becoming. And I would urge us all to look very closely at the... Um, the Machanam Amrachti, how does that translate to... Uh, in English, they're called the, the National Unity Party. Right. It's the party of Benny Gantz and Justice Minister Gidon Sal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Zev Elkin and Matan Kahana and Gabi Ashkenazi, of course. Right. A, a weird combination when, yeah. when you think... Gadi Eisenkot. Yes, Gadi Eisenkot, sorry. Um, Different general. <laughs> yes. Um, that, that come together and all endorse, you know, at least, certainly the, the, the tagline, shrinking the conflict, but I think there's work done there uh, of breathing life into it and differentiating it from economic peace. Um, very cognizant of the, th- of the, of the one-state threat um, that, that lies at the end of the tunnel of PA collapse, and we're very mindful of understanding that uh, economic measures are not enough and that the strategic challenge in the interim before Israel, if at all, will decide on its endgame, whether it wants to swallow or not the West Bank, swallow the West Bank or separate from it, um, that the, the strategic challenge in the interim is enhancing, not just sustaining, but enhancing Palestinian self-governing capabilities, i.e. Um, the Palestinian Authority. So we're not just talking about economic measures, certainly not those that, that, that focus on you know, individual households' well-being, but we're talking about, you know, infrastructure, major national infrastructure work, if it's water, energy, um, other economic measures, and add to that possibly some uh, political measures, you know, um, zoning and planning issues throughout the West Bank, in theory, ultimately, also uh, transferring some sea areas to, to A and B to enhance Palestinian contiguity, Um Transportational contiguity is very important. Uh, connection to the world via the Allenby Bridge, a much more autonomous, I think, connection to the world, uh, and perhaps uh, even international trade, uh, autonomous international trade, uh, eventually. So I think the future of shrinking the conflict uh, is a bit more promising than its past, but that obviously remains to be seen. Who's at the helm? Who are the power centers in Israel's next coalition? Yes, that's always a, a key question about anything that goes on here, the, the internal politics. Um, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, 
visit our 120 Project Israel Elections portal, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support. I don't know. I- I don't think we should mince words. I think the Israeli side, uh, the public, if not the government, uh, has enjoyed relative stability. Again, r- the word relative stability from the West Bank, in and from the West Bank for over a decade uh, with Abu Mazen at the helm of the PA and very close security coordination between the Israeli security forces and the Palestinian security forces. And the fear now, and you hear it verbalized again by the senior most Israeli officials is that this may be collapsing and that their their only response really is A, threats uh, towards the PA, and then B, a military response, Operation Breakwater, and that there's no real thinking or soul-searching on the Israeli side. How did we get here? And what have we done over the past decade to actually bolster this partner on the other side um, instead of squander instead of squandering the past decade and and so I, I guess that's my little transition we shouldn't just pin it all on the Bennett Lapid government I think Bibi Netanyahu who was running things here for 12 years uh, over the bulk of this post second intifada period uh, has a lot of blame too if things go things go pear-shaped as the Brits say I think, I think, sorry, Nera, I just want to interject here because I think it's, it's really important. That's why I said the last decade, but I think it's not lost. I think it was lost, you know, sort of on purpose. There was, there was a strategy by the Netanyahu government, right, to undermine, um, the PA and exactly. then Lapid and Bennett, this government. There were many people, defense, uh, echelon that wanted to do this all along said, no, 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 no. We actually, it's in our interest to have a strong PA. However, <laughs> and I think that's the problem that we, <laughs> How should I say it? I don't want to sound provocative, but you know, I think, um, it's very, we, we've been doing this for so long, right? Israel got so good at this, this running this like affairs and with the intermediate, and you know, we have, it's 29 years to the Oslo Accords, many more years before of Israeli control. Um, and I think we're confusing strengthening the PA with uh, strengthening the, uh, key individuals that run it. And there are, Around three, right? Currently three. Be, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas, obviously, and Hussein Sheikh, who is the, you know, Minister of uh, Civilian Affairs, so all the coordination with Israel, and that's a very powerful position, and is also in charge of the American file now. Um, funny mm-hmm. enough, he tweeted uh, a picture of him with an APAC delegation. I don't know if that gets you... Uh, popularity <laughs> votes within the Palestinian public. If you tweet on the, on the streets of Janine, probably yes, not. by the way, it's an APAC delegation, a very important group. They brought uh, leaders in communications and in think tanks, but there are, you know, there was uh, Heather, Nuther, the, she was the Pompeo spokesperson, right? She delivered, I mean, they were part of the, the Trump peace plan. Anyway, you see just the strategy on the Palestinian side, but it's going to say, so it's uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, Hussein Sheikh, and uh, Majid Faraj, uh, head of security 
you know, and, and these have been Israel's partners, but this is not strengthening the Palestinian authority, strengthening the Palestinian people, making sure benefits trickle down to the people. Uh, uh, we're, we're scared of elections for obvious reasons because we are afraid that a terrorist organization will take over, but anything that's sort of like democracy, uh, governance, the young generation that is yearning to have any say in public affairs there, you know, and there are a lot of people, I mean, not that young, right? Like in our, you know, in their forties that want to, want to, want to stab, want, 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 want to be involved, but they can't because there's never elections. They can never break through. So I think this is like, when we look in the mirror and you think, what have we done wrong? I think part of the thing we've done wrong is that our way of, uh, Wanting to, we want to strengthen the PA, which is very important, but let's strengthen the PA and not uh, key individuals because that is not sustainable because those individuals are not strong enough. And Israel's support for them even undermines them further in the eyes of their people. So why are we wondering if those people can deliver it at the end? And maybe it's not in their interest either. Um, That is not a long term strategy. And this is what we need to do. By the way, it's not just Israel, it's Israel and the international community. And of course, uh, it's not entirely our fault. The Palestinian Authority itself um, has failed to emerge as a power, as an entity, as a government that delivers effective services to their people, but we never helped it. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of blame to go around, including at the very top of the Palestinian Authority. Um, I always argue that, yes, all that is is definitely true, but uh, the the actor who has the most control over the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority is is actually Israeli politicians. I think if you look at this systemically, what we see here is potentially a fundamental mismatch between the toolbox that Israel has in its hand, or I, I would better frame it, the toolbox that Israel has gotten used to uh, deploy in these instances and what's needed now. We're excellent operationally, right? Uh, uh, we can act on our own. Or we can, you know, talk to these individuals that Chira had outlined, um, you know, under the guise of strengthening the PA, give them, you know, invite them to Rosh Ha'ayin, give them a bit more money, perhaps more equipment, um, and or big loans maybe uh, when needed, and, and, and hope that they'll take care of this. And I think potentially now uh, this toolbox is at best outdated and, um, and at worst, it's just not complete enough. Exhausted. Uh, and, and we really need to think beyond that. What does strengthening the PA really means? Um, and in, in that sense, you know, some reforms in the PA are certainly needed. Uh, certainly the security forces, you two are much more uh, uh, knowledgeable on that, the inverted pyramids and, and all the stuff that's been mentioned. So reforms there, but also reforms in other uh, areas of, of governance, civilian areas of governance. And you know what? We don't even, the benchmark shouldn't be that high. Maybe even just better governance would be a good start. Uh, we could challenge Abu Mazen's strategy of Fatah fragmentation, especially yes. that now we are a victim of it, uh, if you would. And, and if we look beyond, you know, really political renewal on the Palestinian side, um, that starts with better governance and perhaps ends up, uh, I would say this, perhaps with elections, uh, that give legitimacy back to the PA. Um, and, and, and by now, you know, as we see Hamas, uh, um, Israel working with Hamas elsewhere, 
and, and Hamas undergoing to a certain extent its own fragmentation and its own PAization, if that's if that's a term that we could deploy here. <laughs> Trademark that. Right. Uh, so, so you, know, you know, this is a new toolbox that Israel will need to develop and develop very quickly as things unravel in the West Bank. Luckily, right now, in some extent, this is limited to the Northern West Bank. Right. If and when we'll see Hebron, where the real money and the real organization, to the extent they exist in the West Bank, in the in the West Bank, and the real weapons lie, that'll be a different ballgame. I agree. I mean, I think we're all in violent agreement. Um, I'll take your point, Dan, one step further. I think it's not just that Israel may have exhausted this kind of decade plus toolbox. It's that it's not even willing to develop additional tools in that toolbox that it's willing to deploy vis-a-vis the Palestinians in the West Bank. That certain things, like Shira mentioned, are just, you know, they're they're at best name-checked, and at worst, it's like, well, it's too politically difficult or sensitive to do it at the moment. Um, and that's, that's not even talking about Netanyahu's strategy, which I think was very deliberate in the sense that, he, you know, he was openly, indirectly negotiating with Hamas that was firing rockets at Israel, uh, while at the same time calling Abu Mazen and the PA leadership uh, terrorists in suits while they were very closely coordinating security-wise with Israel. And he knew that. Bibi knew that. Uh, so I think it was a very deliberate st- strategy on his part to uh, to undercut the PA uh, diplomatically, politically, like we said, even in many respects militarily, uh, and that now people are waking up here and saying, well, why... Why is the PA in such in such dire straits? Um, final question on the Northern West Bank issue. Uh, I've heard for several months now these tacit Israeli threats, usually issued by unnamed senior Israeli security officials, that if the PA doesn't doesn't do more in the Northern West Bank, that uh, there will be no choice. We're going to launch a major operation. I guess, bigger than Operation Breakwater uh, into, say, the Janine refugee camp and maybe other other parts. How realistic do we think this threat is, uh, both on its own terms and also, obviously, with November 1st, Election Day, looming very, very close? What do we think? This is kind of just messaging or, or is there real substance behind this threat? Dan, what do you think? Hard to gauge at this point. I will say I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, but not because Israel wants to go there, right? Uh, but if the, just the threat assessment becomes such that it requires it, then Israel will do it. Um, it will be, you know, rolling the dice on behalf of, of this outgoing government. Uh, but if they have to, if they have to choose, they will rather look uh, active as opposed to passive on the security front. They cannot afford to look, you know, totally passive uh, going into elections. Um, which which may be a big part of the reasoning explanation behind Operation Breakwater, but that's that may be a different issue. Right, but, but I will say this. Israel has gotten very, very, very good operationally, right, on the security front. Uh, tools that are certainly at hand today, both technological and operational, um, you, you know, did not exist, you know, uh, in Defensive Shield 20 years ago. And, and today... You know, security services can communicate upwards to the political echelons that the cost of increasing security pressure is not as high and that the risks involved are, you know, are not what they used to. Uh, but that's true to a certain extent. Once you decide to really go in, 
um, you know, on the ground that changes things, uh, and, and it'll risk that, that perhaps the political echelon will have to take. Shira? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is where um, sort of micro-tactical incidents can really change the equation. Israeli casualties, uh, IDF soldiers, an IDF uh, officer uh, was killed. Um, uh, and these things uh, create sort of the pressure for uh, a major operation. But on the other hand, uh, I, the sober assessment is also, in, I think also in the security establishment, is that <laughs> what is, what is going to get us? So ironically, there's right, there's this paradox. Israel tries to sort of contain the fire, but then it increases the, 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 the chances of friction are, are growing. And then you have by going in, by, by going, going in, in every right. Night. By going in, and then you're on the verge of a major escalation. So I think there's an interest of keeping this below the sort of conflict threshold, but then stuff happens, right? I mean, people get killed and then this pressure goes on and there's the political, the political clock, right? The political considerations. I don't think this, this government wants to look uh, weak in the face of uh, Palestinian terrorism. It, it doesn't play to its strength. And on the other hand, it doesn't want to be in the middle of a, uh, of a, uh, to find itself in the middle of uh, uh, a severe, right? A severe, exactly. A third intifada uh, situation. Yeah. Um, but you know, to 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 this is this is a this is a conundrum. It's it's a real, 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 real issue. This is where you need to come with with a strategy, right? And not just hope for good. Come come with a strategy of how what what can can you uh, empower the PA? Can you support it? Can you have them do do more? Can we take advantage of the fact that there are uh, there's a seven country member team here on the ground? Supposedly, also to strengthening, just for, for strengthening the Palestinian security forces. Uh, what can we do uh, to work with them and 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 tr- try to uh, have them address some of these threats and not uh, Israel do it? But uh, how how this how this evolves? What happens? Sorry, just I'll just say what how this evolves. What happens in Jerusalem next week? Jewish holidays start. Uh, Abu Mazen is going to give a speech in the UN uh, uh, in a few days. Uh, based on last year's speech, this one is going to be, you know, it's going to be a tough speech again. I don't know how much uh, uh, it doesn't seem like he, doesn't seem like he has a lot of influence on his public, but you know, it's just more of that stuff that it doesn't look like we're going in a direction of de-escalation. Um, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. So this is the concern definitely amongst the Israeli professionals and security establishment and officials and also just outside analysts like us that you have, again, this kind of ongoing and steady escalation of violence in the West Bank, uh, you know, loosening PA control at the very least. Uh, You have the high holidays upcoming, uh, likely friction, hopefully not outright violence in Jerusalem, around the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa and the Haram al-Sharif. Uh, and also, like you said, the UN General Assembly, uh, Yair Lapid is flying there this week to give his speech as along with Abu Mazen. Uh, in years past, Abu Mazen's speech has had an impact. It's really hard to say how much 
that you know his his speeches have an impact but we've seen after after speeches particular speeches by Abu Mazen that there has been uh, uptick in tensions um again i don't think directly coordinated and directed by Abu Mazen himself but uh i guess uh in terms of the overall environment and atmosphere in the west bank it has an impact so then how again not to belabor the point how concerned are you about the UNGA, the speeches, the high holidays. We saw this spring, this past spring, real efforts by the Israeli government to to engage various Arab actors, whether the Gulfies or Jordan or Egypt, to try to preempt tensions and escalation in and around Jerusalem. Uh, there have been reports that the Lapid administration is trying to do the same this time around. Uh, what do you think? Last spring, it didn't quite work. Okay, so first of all, I'm not very concerned about speeches anymore. Um, maybe I'm too cynical. Okay. I mean, it gives its share of work. Or realistic. <laughs> maybe. It gives our share of work, right, to our foreign ministry and our very dear friends at the State Department. It is a headache. You know, there may be some headlines coming out of there. And another symbol of, of the challenge confronting, you know, engaged international actors uh, to a certain extent like the United States. Uh, but, but, for me, the great mobilizer is Al-Aqsa, uh, Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. Um, that is the only thing that unites all Palestinians wherever they are. West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and inside Israel. Uh, a lot of activism coming from the northern branch of Israel's Islamic movement and others. It's just, it's just you know, the only constant um, that can mobilize, that can really take the existing escalation and, you know, upgrade it to, to a whole new level. Um, and here, my concern is that from the Israeli government's perspective, they had learned the lessons of May 21. Remind you, that was still a, a Netanyahu government uh, and, and, and the missiles coming from Gaza. They have, to a certain extent, applied them in the recent Ramadan, in the spring, they have even upgraded their operational capabilities, Israel's operational capabilities, police, Shin Bet, etc., toward uh, Tisha B'Av, 9th ninth ninth above. Um, and by now, Israel has operational answers to, uh, 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 to the site. Uh, that's a great concern of mine because I think that's misreading the dynamics. Um, and, and, and I think with, with you know, Sukkot, that is the holiday that calls for the biggest pilgrimage um, uh, of the of all the Jewish holidays. To the old city in Jerusalem. Yes, to the old city and to, to the Temple Mount yeah. itself. And, and, um, and I'm concerned that, that, that what used to be, you know, a political issue that required a, a political religious issue uh, that required really careful handling by now, it's being looked at as mostly an operational challenge. Certainly, there are discussions with the Jordanians, and I hope that they can, you know, uh, 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 mitigate some Arab reactions. But uh, that may not be enough. Time will tell. Yeah, no, I, you know, the reports are, and you insinuated that the, you know, um, Lapid when he's going to the UN, um, he's going to meet with Abdallah, King Abdallah of Jordan, um, and. They're both reportedly concerned 
about uh, the security, the deteriorating security situation in the West, West Bank, the weakening of the PA, and obviously uh, Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, the erosion of the status quo with that, and, and, and uh, the potential for escalation coming from there. And, uh, and, uh, and there's going to be also a side meeting with Erdogan, uh, Israel uh, and Turkey normalized ties last month. And this could just be a symbolic meeting, but I think uh, both of these meetings can help uh, maybe uh, improve the situation if done wisely. Uh, we, you know, Turkey, because I, I agree with Dan, uh, Al-Aqsa Haram al-Sharif, this is sort of the, the flashpoint, right? And this is a place where Turkey and Israel usually clashed over Jerusalem, but there could be cooperation uh, between them on calming down the situation there. Uh, same thing with uh, with uh, with Jordan. Uh, my understanding is that Israel was hoping that Jordan is going to pressure Abu Mazen uh, to tone down his speech and not to uh, promote a, a bid for full member state status at the UN or appeal for the ICC or threatening to... Uh, um, stop coordination with Israel. Now, it's a problem with Abu Mazen, right? Because it's like the boy that cried wolf. There are a lot of threats. <laughs> and he's become very uh, adept at uh, at uh, uh, building ladders uh, to, to climb down from the trees. He's He climbs up first. So, so um, you get my point. He's, uh, so, but, 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 you know, as someone who listened to his uh, tone of speech last year, and we know the frustration frustration of the Israeli strategy, frustration from the U.S. administration that, yeah, of course, it's better than Trump administration, but, you know, what they hoped with the change in Washington that would bring them more meaningful, um, meaningful achievements, something. And, and what have they really gotten, though? Uh, really very symbolic things, you know, support for East Jerusalem hospitals, but of course, it's pl- more pledges than than actually funding and and really very symbolic things. Um, so, you know, this is, this, this is, is a concern. I'm also skeptic of speeches, but if those, if, if something of that speech is translated into, um, a policy, then there is reason for concern. And, and the question is whether those regional countries, and, you know, we're talking about Jordan and Turkey, uh, but I don't know how much Israel's like new friends in the Gulf. I mean, the UAE, do you think, that, first of all, they don't have the leverage. I mean, they could have the leverage, but they, they're not going to try to influence Abu Mazen. This is not the type of political relationships that they have. Right. And which other country is going to come into this? Egypt? I mean, um, so back to basics, right? It's Israel's problem. Yeah, it's Israel's problem because I don't think this is a diplomatic or, or PR issue in terms of Al-Aqsa and, and the Temple Mount. I think there there has been a real erosion, like you mentioned at the top, uh, in terms of Jewish visitors, uh, Jewish visitors praying at the site. And so, uh, you know, if that leads to to a flashpoint, if you have thousands of Jews uh, going up to the Temple Mount uh, over Sukkot, that's uh, that's a problem. That's like a real problem, not just a uh, you know the Palestinians misunderstood the problem or or are trying to to leverage it. Um, that's my concern. Like we saw, by the way, in the spring, uh, despite all of Israel's diplomatic efforts uh, ahead of time to preempt it, uh, there were clashes, there were tensions, didn't spill out, um, into other areas like we saw in May, 2021. Uh, but it was still concerning. Um, 
And I will say, just to kind of sum up this part, uh, a long time ago, a person uh, who knows who knows about such things said to me that a third intifada will start if three conditions or events take place. Not all, but maybe some. Number one, uh, Al-Aqsa, like Dan mentioned very correctly, that if uh, if the Palestinians uh, view any any kind of violation of Al-Aqsa, that will lead that would be a trigger, uh, like we very much saw in May 2021. Number two, uh, if the Fatah Tanzim, if the kind of grassroots militias, all these guys running around, these young guys running around, let's say places like Janin and Nablus, these a lot of them are Fatah affiliated. And so if the Fatah Tanzim mobilize once again, uh, not just, by the way, in the Northern West Bank, but across the West Bank, uh, then, as he put it, we'll be in a different situation. And then number three, uh, what we haven't seen quite yet, although there are disturbing signs, uh, breakdown in the kind of cohesion of the Palestinian Authority security forces, like we very much saw in the 1990s and, and at the start of the Second Intifada. Um, now, again, there are kind of worrying signs. I, I would say that the Israeli media is kind of uh, overblowing it. Uh, we've seen in past periods of escalation that PA security forces, individual kind of officers and so on, have have taken part in terror attacks. Um, and we have had that in recent weeks, but uh, not wholesale like we've seen in the past. So those three conditions, right? Uh and so my fear is that Al-Aqsa, right, over the holidays, uh, and then Abu Mazen at the very top of this of this kind of institution in terms of the Fatah Tanzim and the PA security forces could at the very least send send a counterproductive message. So that's my, my little spiel of concern uh, going into the coming weeks. Um, a final question to both of you, maybe on a more kind of productive or constructive tone. Uh, what can the U.S. and international community do to, like we said, mitigate uh, what's been happening in recent months and uh, hopefully not in the coming weeks? Uh, what do we think in terms of policy prescriptions? Uh, Shira, let's start with you. So, you know, there are, there, there are a few things, right, beyond the security situation, but it's all connected. Uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, came out with a new report September 16, just just three days ago. Uh, not surprising, of course, the economic situation is uh, dire. The fiscal situation is dire. The, 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 the private sector, a bloated public sector, and no development of a private sector, and with a series of, of economic reforms that are very much needed. The problem is that, and I very much agree with these reforms, but and this is what the international community is calling for, but the PA objectively, for the reasons we spoke before, they're just too weak to institute to institute these reforms. Right? They're gonna they need to increase taxes. <laughs> with uh, nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes, and when you are eighty six percent of your population, or whatever the approval ratings are for uh, Abu Mazen, when eighty six percent of your uh, population uh, uh, disapprove of you, uh, you definitely don't want to raise taxes, right? So this is one thing: cutting wages, uh, even reforms in the Palestinian security forces that you wrote about, right? You have to uh, early retirement, uh, pensions. You you just can't do these things. So I think we have to go about. Um, the U.S., Israel, the international community about reforms that are much more um, uh, careful, 
that would be meaningful, that would be meaningful for the, for the, for the average, you know, Palestinian Joe, uh, that would make uh, improvements in people's lives. And that would hand in hand, uh, you can't just limit it to the silo it to the economic and the fiscal uh, measures. And it's not alone. It's not more uh, work permits in Israel to people with master's degree from the West Bank. It, this is not this is not economic development, right? You need to do serious economic development, which is not economic piece, but go hand in hand with the governance piece, right? With the reform, with the civil society, with, 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 it's like a dirty word in Israel, but with um, accepting the concept of, of elections and democracy and, and, and empowerment of uh, Palestinian people. And then with that also uh, come with a reform. Uh, uh, there's so much needed reform in the Palestinian security forces that the, there's no vacuum, right? That the West is not the, the wild, wild West, wild West, West Bank, right? It's, it's a wild, wild West Bank. It's a, it's an actual place where they can take over, but all these things. Uh, and actually I, I will say that IPF is working on these three uh, topics, hoping to bring, um, concrete proposals it's not it's not very easy i can bring the grocery list of oh the pa needs to do that like i just mentioned that yeah. but um but but how to do these reforms uh what kind of support uh can be lent to it what uh what is how, you know in terms of risk management yeah it means taking some risks on on all sides um and if we are willing to factor in that uh, the 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 uh, failing to act and failing to reform and failing to strengthen the PA will have much more dire consequences for Israel's security. Um, so I, I still believe uh, there are options and there are things that we can do. Palestinian nationalism is not dead. Uh, there's still, uh, and I think it's a great luck that there's still Palestinians that want to be, want to state and want to be separate from, from Israel. But uh it's in our interest to to help them do this state building. Okay, um, Dan. Final word to you, longtime listener, first time caller. What would you like to see from the U.S. and the international community? Look, uh, I think Israeli elections loom large. There's only so much that can be done until then um, because of constraints we have discussed. Uh, I think the goal should be hopefully to contain and stabilize the situation until there's elections and hope that you have an Israeli partner that can join you in some strategic rethinking along the lines that Shira outlined. Uh, so, it, so within that framework, uh, until elections, first of all, manage Al-Aqsa to the best you can. Uh, a lot of encouragement uh, to Israel to contain uh, activists, uh, uh, you know, you know the temple activists, uh, mount activists, Jewish, Jewish prayer, radical Jewish activists, right? Yeah, on the site, um, certainly the overt prayer, the group prayer, the flags, and and as we near elections, you know, many people are motivated to challenge Israeli government uh, there and police there on these. So hold the line there. Uh, you know, certain support to the security forces, Palestinian security forces to the extent that it's possible, and lay the groundwork right now for these initial steps for Palestinian political renewal, starting with better governance and, and, and Fatah, you know, uh, reconciliation within Fatah, uh, if you would, to the extent possible. Exactly. Um, uh, I think 
communicating to Abu Mazen that his Fatah fragmentation policy is no longer tolerated by the international community, now aided perhaps by an, you know an Israeli at least talking point, uh, but probably even beyond. At least Israel is now much more aware of the threats embedded in this policy, and then these are good places to start in the near term, and hopefully we will have enough actors in place to engage this more strategically after the elections. Uh, very well put by both of you. I agree with all of that. And I think, yes, in the near term, uh, try to de-escalate definitely over the holidays in Jerusalem. Uh, and also, I would say maybe uh, reigning in the IDF, uh, especially from a large-scale operation in a place like Janine. I think that would that would be counterproductive going after each and every 20-year-old gunman in the refugee camp. I don't know uh, how that really helps the overall strategic environment when there are obviously going to be to be casualties on the Palestinian side and maybe even on the Israeli side going in. Uh, so that's in the near term. And then, yes, in the long term, um, again, depending on which Israeli government comes out of November 1st, that's a huge question. Uh, but on the Palestinian side, yes, I think American, European, and Arab pressure needs to be brought to bear on Ramallah to say, you know, the one thing they can and should do in order to both boost their own future and the future of the PA and to reduce tensions in the West Bank is Fatah reconciliation and to bring in all these disparate groups that Abu Mazen has alienated uh, in all these various pockets of the West Bank. I think that would go a long way. Um, So with that maybe somewhat hopeful conclusion, I guess, after an hour of uh, concern, uh, Shira, Dan, Thank you so much and uh, have uh, a Shana Tova and Chag Hopefully it stays quiet. Thank you, Neri. Thank you, Shira. Thank you, Shana Tova. Okay, that was Shira Efron and Dan Rotem. Many thanks to them for their generous time and insights. If you want to learn more about the current situation in the West Bank, and you should, be sure to check out the upcoming IPF webinar this Thursday with our old podcast friends Amos Harel and Ibrahim Dalalshe. Also, as always, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe, and thanks for listening, as always, and happy upcoming Shana Tova and Chag Sameach to all those celebrating.